Marini's Media. Totally Football Show. Today, Bundesliga title. I'm just looking, I'm not buying, say Dortmund. KO'd by Kimmich in the Klassiker. We look back on Tuesday's big game and all the big fallout, plus the rest of the midweek action. Also, we'll be asking why teams are having better results on the road these days in Germany. Is it just like eye tests? Also, Champions League Chapter 11, the road to Old Trafford. A game so goalless they could barely even score in the penalty shootout, you say? Sign me up. All that, plus other things too, in the Totally Football Show, in association with Paddy Power. More on the new health guidelines later on, but right now it's hello to you, listener, and hello to today's Team Totally, James Horncastle. Hello. Live from the Cotswolds, Duncan Alexander. Hello, James. Hi, Duncan. What's going on on top of your head, by the way? What? My hair? You've got a kind of like weekend-esque... It's the new Cristiano Ronaldo look. Yeah, actually... Yeah, did we like Cristiano's new hairstyle? I thought it was very Brett Anderson circa 1994. It was good. Yeah. It's an improvement on the last trim that he had, but then again, it's a very low base. Also here and sitting very patiently, perhaps in his garden by the looks of it, is Raphael Honigstein. Hi, Rafa. (laughs) Hi, James. Hello. Plenty to get through in today's show. Really looking forward to discussing Champions League 02-03. And also, Rafa, to get your views on the game we enjoyed together on Tuesday Tea Time, The Classica. On Spotify, smart speaker and podcast platforms everywhere, this is the Totally Football Show from Muddy Knees Media. Bayern still have it and they're still probing. Now Kimmich tries to float for a key. He's done it. The goal comes. What a goal in the Classica. The goal there that won Bayern Tuesday's big top-of-the-table clash and put them seven points clear with six games to go. Some goal, eh? It was a beautiful goal, James. Um, One that combined, I think, audacity with preparation because Ansi Flick, the Bayern coach, had told his players before the game that Roman Berkey, the Dortmund keeper, likes to step out of his goal um, a little bit too far at times. And... uh, if you watch it back, Kimmich actually never looks up after collecting the ball at the edge of the box. So maybe Berkey, you know, flapping at it at the end kind of slightly ruins the beauty of it. But still, I think to try to execute it and to do it as well as he did in such a big game uh, is, is quite impressive. I think also what stood out to me about the goal was not only uh, the finish itself, but how uh, Kimmich got himself into a position to do it because he kind of instantly wins back the ball um, just as Dortmund are trying to to break out, keeps the pressure on and then finds himself in that position to deliver, let's say, the instructions that Rafa was talking about, which feel quite apt. I mean, this seems to be a very German thing, just following the uh, podcasts that we've done on the Champions League history with Lars Ricken essentially being told the same thing by Ottmar Hitzfeld. What is it with Germans spotting goalkeepers off their line? This is incredible. Fabulous goal. Dortmund had started so well, Rafa. I think a lot of people afterwards were asking what happened to them. They started well. They created 
good chances on the break, but as Bayern grew into it and started pressing more effectively, Dortmund just ran out of steam a little bit. I think they also got a little bit unlucky because they lost you know, a key player halfway through the second half in uh, Erling Haaland. Um, I think Favre taking off Brandt was a decision that backfired because Brandt, you know, for all his problems maybe in picking the right pass and you know getting the final ball slightly ever ever so slightly wrong was also at the heart of all the good stuff that Dortmund did in the first half so I think uh, there was a substitution that did not really um, help Dortmund's course and in the end Bayern's quality was just was just too high there was not that much in it I mean the game could have easily I think finished 1-1 especially if Dortmund get the penalty that uh, VR and the referee somehow overlooked. I think it was another game where Alfonso Davis sort of again kind of yeah, captured the Bayern uh, Rotrana. Mm. Well, yeah, <laughs> yes. performance performance of the post game came from uh, Thomas Muller in that wonderful interview yeah. with Archie Rintut. He he gets the opponent uh, when you think, oh, I have time, I have time, and then me 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 the Roadrunner, the FC Bayern Roadrunner, comes ahead and uh, and uh, steal the ball. Yeah, he was as as good and fast as as we saw before the lockdown. I mean, I think the thing that really struck me with this game was after 10 minutes, it was a really open end-to-end start to the game, and everyone online was kind of astounded that, you know, teams could play this well behind closed doors. And I think I think it's kind of augurs quite well for the rest of the league starting up in the sense that, you know, yes, it's not quite the same without the crowds there, but the if you've got good quality players, you're going to have really good entertaining football. So that was quite positive. I think you see more football, um, which is good if the teams are as good as Bayern and Dortmund, but it's perhaps less entertaining if the teams rely more on the colour and the spectacle and the, the narrative, if you will, to make it a, an exciting game. If it's just a, a pure game between two sides batting for relegation or mid-table side, it's, it's not quite the same. Well, Bayern has set for their eighth straight title. Hansi Flick has now won 15 of his first 18 Bayern matches in the Bundesliga, matching uh, the previous best set by Pep Guardiola, of course. For Dortmund, meanwhile, Rafa, how big is the fallout from this defeat, from missing out on the title? Well, it could be quite momentous because Lucien Favre has been fighting against doubts for most of his tenure, certainly in the second half of last season, where they kind of collapsed and only had 34 points this time the collapse if you will happen in the first half of the season where they only amassed 30 points which then leaves you in a position where you basically have to win every single game of the second half of the season including the one against Bayern so I don't think he lost it if you will or Dortmund you know lost the title losing against Bayern but they, they dropped too many points in the first half of this season and that's where the big doubts about his management come in because Dortmund realized that they are you know, the underdogs against Bayern, but there's no reason why they shouldn't be getting better results against everybody else in the league and get to the point where they can also come close to 80 points, which you will need to to win the title. So the the accusation is that his his ways, which are very professorial and very sort of technical and a um, little bit cold, if you will, is perhaps not the right fit for a, for a club and a team that, that wants to feel these emotions and kind of feel that extra kind of energy that somebody like Jurgen Klopp used to bring and uh, unfortunately that his shadow just continues to to loom large because uh, whoever comes falls short when it comes to to winning stuff Uh, and and that's the big debate but the good news for Favre is that there's not really that much 
alternative on out on the market that Dortmund kept him because they couldn't find somebody else this year, um, as did Bayern with Kovac, and they might keep him next year because they still can't find anybody else. Mm. In the meantime, he was just following his instincts as a father, so can't really question that. Anthony Borg asks, what do Dortmund need to get close to Bayern's level? Well, I mean, the easy answer would say would be money because they start every season about 250 million euros down in comparison to Bayern. And that is a big gap to fill. You can do it by selling a big player every other year. Uh, but of course, then you have to reinvest the money into players who then have to go back to that level while the big players leave and, and be big players elsewhere. And Bayern, of course, keep all their best players. They add more and more winners. More winners want to join them. Uh, and more players who believe that Bayern is the final destination rather than the place where they become the player that they can, you know, be uh, and then go on somewhere else. So until they change that dynamic, which is going to be very, very difficult, they will always start every every campaign as underdog. What I would say is that this year, um, over the course of the season, they managed to buy half a team, effectively, and really strengthened. If you think about Hummels arriving and Chan and Hazard and Brandt and Haaland, you'd expect them to push Bayern close, even with all the problems or with all the structural inequality, if you will. And they haven't quite been able to do it. OK. Um, one last thing from me, Rafa, on this. Uh, how gutted are the Bundesliga about Tuesday's result? I mean, they would have preferred to to see a title race continue, of course, because it's, it's good for business. But uh, as Christian Seifert said in an interview he, he did with Forbes, the main thing for them was, first of all, getting the show on the road. Uh, I mean, it would have been nice for them to, to have a, a title race, but just having the games on and being the first one to, to kind of risk that, uh, that was such a huge task that everything else is is almost immaterial. And it, the wider point is that domestically, which of course is the most important market, the lack of a title race doesn't really hurt the Bundesliga as a product because people still tune in to watch their team Every week, they don't really care whether their team are ten points behind Bayern or you know or five or three. So the um, the knock-on effect domestically is very little, but of course internationally they would have liked to present themselves as a more competitive league where it's not a foregone conclusion that Bayern will win. But I'm not mm. sure there's a there's an easy way to do that uh, within the existing framework of the Bundesliga, which doesn't encourage outside investment. Right. Well, absolutely. The bigger point there that we've had three rounds of action now and. Everything so far has gone well. No teams going back into isolation or anything like that. We'll talk more about what happened midweek, uh, where there were some surprise wins and, and none of the other top five teams actually coming up with a victory beyond uh, Bayern. But that'll be later on in the show. Premier League, meantime, a busy meeting on this Thursday. But word filtering out, probably official by the time you hear this, is that the Premier League season will restart on the 17th of June of this year, Duncan. Yes, 2020 football Premier League in 2020 in June. Um, there's only ever been two top flight games ever in England in June. Both really? at Bramall Lane, yeah, in 1947 due to the bad winter. Um, Arsenal have got a 100% losing record in June as it stands and they looks like they'll be starting the Premier League back up with their trip to Manchester City um, on the 17th along with Sheffield United again visiting Aston Villa so yeah and then that will lead into the weekend where there should be a full uh, round of games on the 19th 20th and, and 21st so yeah it looks like it's uh, I mean obviously there's still a few hurdles to clear and, and various you know minor issues but it looks like we are edging 
uh, ever closer to the Premier League coming back. More when we know more. Now, also meeting today, Thursday, is the Italian government to decide whether to give City A approval for their return to action plan, which involves potentially all the games being played at 10 o'clock at night, James. Yes, because the uh, players' union have kicked up a fuss about the prospect of playing in the afternoon through um, June and July when it's very hot, when it's typically the off-season. Um, but again, in Italy, this is, this is very complicated. I, I think one of the reasons why initially the league said, look, we want to come back on June 13th, and then um, that was kind of put on ice was because the protocol that came back from the government scientific committee again ruled that in the event of a positive test within um, the, the group, um, the essential kind of playing and coaching group, um, a team would have to go into quarantine for, for two weeks. And that has been doubled down this week despite continued negotiations, um, which given City A has more fixtures to fulfil um, than any of the other leagues in, in Europe's top five leagues, if we, if we want to put it like that, would make completing the season very well. So we've seen them deliberate a little bit more on playoffs um, as a plan B, um, but it's still quite acrimonious within, uh, I wouldn't say within the league, but we've seen negotiations with broadcasters, not break down, but you know, Sky um, in Italy saying, you know, we will, we will not pay um, the outstanding instalment of, uh, of, of this season's games unless we get a discount on next year's. Um, and yeah, just as we're about to hit uh, the new rights cycle for City at, um, TV rights, you know, you don't want to necessarily be going to court with, uh, with, with the, the broadcast that, that you want to sell those rights to. So it's a very delicate situation um, still in City Just on time slots, um, apparently in the Premier League uh, for weekends, they're going to be playing 12, 2, 4 o'clock, 6 o'clock and 8 o'clock on Saturday and Sunday. So basically continuous football from midday to 10 o'clock at night on both days of the weekend. So Brilliant. All right, well, we'll hear more about what happened in the Bundesliga midweek and what's due to happen this weekend later on. But next up, we dust off Champions League 2002-2003. The Bundesliga is back again this weekend, which means more of your mates bluffing about their German football knowledge on Zoom. Yeah, I've always said the Bundesliga is the most balanced league in Europe, isn't it? Balanced? It's football, not tightrope walking. You might think you know about German football, but if you don't, there's always Paddy Power's Acker Cracker. Get your money back as a free bet if one leg of your Acker lets you down on all Bundesliga matches and all markets. Paddy Power. Max free bet £10, 4 plus fold Ackers. Minimum odds 1 to 5 on each leg. T's and C's apply. 18 plus. BeGumbleAware.org. On Spotify, smart speaker and podcast platforms everywhere, this is the Totally Football Show from Muddy Knees Media. Like goals, like dramatic European finals then you're going to love this Champions League campaign. 2002-2003, the road to Old Trafford. It featured redemption for Italy, regression for Germany, revenge for tube-travelling former Tottenham boss Christian Gross, plus a wonderful free-flowing goal-packed game at Old Trafford that changed the course of football, only it most certainly wasn't the final. Let's take it back to the start. September 2002, Liberty X were number one. We had some fresh faces in the group stage. Maccabi Haifa, the first Israeli side in the competition. They were playing their home games in Cyprus. 
Genk were in Basel as well and Newcastle were back again. Duncan, what, what do you remember of the first group stage? Well, Basel were obviously in Liverpool's group um, and they were seen as a fairly easy opponent for Liverpool to get past, but it, it didn't turn out that way. Um, and they went basically into the final game of the group. Um, Liverpool needed a win to get through uh, and they went 3-0 down. Um, and within yes, half an hour? Within half an hour, yes, they managed to pull it back, featuring a Michael Owen special, a missed penalty that he then followed up and, uh, and scored. But um, the best thing I saw about this was... Um, after the game, obviously, there's a lot of recrimination around Jared Houllier and, and you know his bad signings in the summer. But uh, it said Basel had prepared for this game a training camp in the Black Forest, where the schedule was composed of videos, lectures, and quizzes, um, which sounds very much like lockdown life in in 2020. So yeah. maybe maybe Christian Gross was uh, was a visionary. Yeah, Christian Gross's Basel side would of course problems uh, later on, of course, to to Man United, but that Group One by the way, by a Valencia side that were in scintillating form, beat Basel 6-2 and would make it all the way to the quarterfinals. Their manager, a young Spaniard named Rafael Benitez. Hmm. And I implore everyone to go back and watch the footage of the Aymar goal. Pablo Aymar against Liverpool at the Mestalla. One of the most mesmerising kind of team moves um, that I think the Champions League has, has ever seen because... I think there are maybe four or five passes in the build-up to move that starts out on the right-hand flank. And the way that they managed to um, lure Liverpool away from Pablo Aymar, they're just following the ball and they get completely sucked in. And all of a sudden, Aymar is completely on his own, 1v1, and scores just a, a magnificent kind of clockwork, kind of mechanical goal. It's brilliant. It's what attracted Benitez to Gareth Barry later in his managerial career, I think. <laughs> Newcastle, meanwhile, got off to a slightly rocky start, losing their first three games in the group without scoring so much as a goal, but still managing to qualify with a last-minute strike from Craig Bellamy away in Rotterdam with pretty much the last kick of the entire group stage. It's Kieran Dyer. Fast back, Lundgren. Oh, Dyer blocked. Bellamy is in. Oh, extraordinary. This could make a £10 million difference to Newcastle United. A couple of things on Newcastle. Um, they had, as you mentioned, the you know coming back from three defeats to qualify is pretty unusual. Um, but they had Nigel Pearson on the touchline um, as an assistant, which everyone knows he is the kind of vortex to mysterious actions going on on a football pitch. So that was an early sign of that. And this was also the season that it meant that... Um, Titus Bramble ended his career with having played as many European Cup games as Diego Maradona. So, that was good. <laughs> Newcastle making it out of the group stage. Liverpool not managing that, despite being quarter-finalists the previous season, thanks to, as Duncan mentioned, only managing a 3-3 draw against Basel on the last day of the group stages. They weren't the only big team, though, going out at the first hurdle. Were they, Rafa? Yeah, I guess it was the biggest surprise of the group stage by not making it out of the group with uh, AC Milan and, uh, and Lens and Deportivo La Coruña. It got off to a bad start because they were beaten by Deportivo and then played catch-up and never never really made it um, and then got knocked out with two points. They didn't even make it into the UEFA Cup, Rafa. No, not even that. The, the fallout from this was that Otmar Hitzfeld was really um, on his last legs almost as a, as a Bayern manager. I mean, as they often do, 
it concentrated minds and then they won the domestic double after this early exit. But you could see that things weren't quite moving again and Bayern tactically were beginning to be left behind. This was also um, the first season of uh, Michael Balak uh, at Bayern, but a very inauspicious one. Very. And it was to be a bad season in general in Europe for German sides. Bayern Leverkusen making it to the second group stage, but once they're losing all six of their matches. They'd been beaten finalists the season before, Rafa. What happened to them? What happened was that uh, huge big players had left that year. And, um, you know, likes of uh, Balak and Zé Roberto. And they couldn't quite stem the tide. And they panicked. Klaus Topmüller got the sack. Uh, they got Klaus Förster in uh, to take charge. And the second half of the season was, was a total disaster. And they very nearly got relegated. Uh, one of those, um, yeah, crazy, crazy seasons where a team perhaps slightly overperforms and then for whatever reason then completely falls apart in the second. Yeah, that's actually strangely, or maybe not, given the size of the club, the only time Bayern haven't finished in the top two of a Champions League group. Um, so they've never finished third and that's the only time they come fourth. So it really kind of, you know, highlights how uh, badly they did. You know who was doing well? The Italians. <laughs> Tiziano Ferro there with Rosso Relativa, big hit of the time in the Classifica. Yeah, the Italians, who you will recall have been represented at every Champions League final between 92 and 98, but in the two previous seasons to this one, hadn't managed to get a single side into the knockout stages, now had four teams who were winning and scoring goals. Roma, who managed that win at the Bernabeu. Juve, who were 5-0 winners over Dinamo Kiev. Milan, who posted a, a 4-0 win away at Deportivo La Coruña. No way was that scoreline coming back to haunt them 12 months later. And Inter, who despite hiring managerial pet cemetery Hector Cooper, also made it out of the group. Watch out, Europe, was the headline in La Gazzetta de la Sport. Indeed. All right then, Duncan, let's move on to your favourite bit, the second group stage. Did this one live up to expectations? Uh, yeah, I mean, as discussed last week, and I think a few people have tweeted us about it, you know, having revisited all these Champions Leagues, I'm, I've fallen in love all over again with the second group stage, um, and I now demand its return imminently. Group love for Duncan. Well, yes, exactly. Um, I mean, I think my favourite moment in it was possibly Craig Bellamy getting sent off very early against Inter. Um, he lashed out at Marco Materazzi and I think, believe that was the last time Materazzi inspired anyone to attack him in the 2000s, so at least that that was uh, snubbed out. Great goal in that game from Matthias Almeida. Almeida, who famously scored that goal for, I think, Lazio against Parma, which was that absolute kind of howitzer with his right foot, which looped uh, up and over, <laughs> up and over Gigi Buffon. And in this this game as well, I think a corner gets cleared and he just smashes it into the top corner. Um, Inter were deceptively good uh, in uh, in this competition after having to come back from the shame and humiliation of throwing the league title away on the final day on May 5th, 2002. I know Gab Marcotti will thank us for uh, for bringing that up uh, again. An inter-side without Ronaldo, but with Crespo and uh, looking good for it as well. They were in a group with Newcastle and Bayer Leverkusen 
and Barcelona, who were the only team still with a perfect record. Arsenal had made it through, but had been rewarded with a very tough quartet uh, alongside Roma, Ajax and Valencia. Milan, meanwhile, were in with the holders, Real Madrid, Borussia Dortmund and Lokomotiv Moscow. And Group D had old friends Man United and Juventus reunited alongside Deportivo La Coruña and Basel. Basel, who of course had knocked Celtic out of the competition back in the kind of qualifying rounds, putting them into the UEFA Cup, more on that later. And then coming up against Man United in the second group stage, scoring against them after only 31 seconds. That, Duncan, is the fifth fastest goal in the competition's history. It is. But Manchester United came back couple of Van Nistelrooy goals. Once again, Van Nistelrooy ended as top scorer. I mean, I'd kind of forgotten how good he was these first couple of seasons at Manchester United. And he was in very much how United kind of dealt with the Premier League in this era as well. I mean, I know that they came back this season and clawed it back against Arsenal. But the previous few seasons, they, um, you know, they'd kind of cantered to the title and they kind of cantered through both group stages. Uh, this season, um, you know they they finish on thirteen points, um, and then the other three teams in Group D, Juventus, Basel, and Deportivo, all had seven. So it was, you know, they went to Juventus, who obviously got to the final and won three 0 Ryan Giggs coming on as a sub and scoring twice. So it it felt almost too serene. Um, and then obviously they get to the quarterfinals and and have to face Real Madrid. Mm. Van Nistelrooy averaged a goal every fifty seven minutes in the competition wow. uh, that season. He got twelve. Uh, in all, which um, you know, once upon a time was very good before Ronaldo and Messi started scoring one every three minutes. So, um, yeah, excellent yeah. work from, from Rude. Man United, who had had their first win away in Germany in, what was it, I think 37 years in the first group stage, getting their revenge on Bayer Leverkusen. Rafa, they also had some interesting moments when they came up against Maccabi Haifa. Yeah, Ferguson surprised everybody when at the pre match press conference he was asked taking a question from an Israeli journalist and uh, went into um, a lot of praise for the opposition saying well Israeli football has improved a lot they beat Lokomotiv Moscow, Parma and AC Milan last season it was a big step up when it was politely pointed out to him that he was talking about Hapoel Tel Aviv which is a completely different team Um, that was um, (laughs) that was awkward Um, how do you uh, like them Hapoels? He'd made the same mistake in a briefing for the Sundays, apparently. So, um, for some reason, he had his wires crossed. Yeah, maybe not the most popular man uh, in Israel, uh, Sir Alex, because he's also quite famous for breaking the nose of the one and only superstar Mordechai Spiegler in a 1967 game against Israel. Well, he very nearly did the same thing, of course, to his own star player, David Beckham, in this season, kicking out a football boot which traversed the dressing room to smash into Bex's Highly prized face. Uh, the pair had uh, seen their relationship cool dramatically. And indeed, by the time that Man United, after victories over Deportivo and a fine 3-0 win at Juventus, came up against the holders Real Madrid in the quarterfinals, Bex was very much on the bench for what turned out to be one of the competition's most famous evenings ever. Ronaldo. He's made space for himself. Ronaldo shot! Pick that out. What a hat-trick. And what a stage. I wish to score it. Yep. Man United taking on Real Madrid. United had lost 3-1 at the Bernabeu in the first leg of the quarter-final, hosting the Marenghis back at Old Trafford. They had a mountain to climb and things got even worse when Ronaldo broke hearts with that, uh, with that opening goal. 
Yeah, running onto that pass from from Guti and uh, Ronaldo kind of in full flight, uh, hitting it first time. Um, some questions about Fabian Barthez's positioning, not only on on that goal, but also on on Ronaldo's third. But I think that quick release uh, from the reigning Ballon d'Or holder after winning the uh, the World Cup with with Brazil uh, in two thousand and two. Um, just sensational. I'd forgotten actually about the the second goal, which is perhaps the less individually kind of bombastic of the of the three. Um, but it comes after a superb passage of play where Figo's kind of jinking uh, on the left hand side of the penalty area, and he fashions this shot which hits the bar, and then Madrid recover the ball and put together a super move. I think with. Zidane, I think, releasing Roberto Carlos to square it for Ronaldo. And that, I suppose, is what many people expected of the Galacticos. You know, that was the style of play and the, the skill and finesse that people expected on a, on a week-in, week-out basis. They struggled for coherence, but on nights like this where they could, uh, well, participate in what were roller coaster, roller coaster games, which were great entertainment for, uh, for everyone watching, it, 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 it sure lived up to the billing. Yeah, it feels like this was the kind of Galactico peak in a sense, and it is the game that lives on. And it feels slightly ironic that Beckham comes on and scores a couple of goals, and possibly signing him then un- you know undermine the entire Galactico project a little bit because they're not that Beckham's a bad player, but they kind of you know unbalance the team a bit trying to fit them all in. Um, loath as I am to criticise the Ronaldo hat trick after the Zidane goal debate from last week, um, it's not that great a hat-trick is it I mean the first goal Barthez has beaten his near post as James has just described the second goal is a really good team goal but all he has to do is tap it in um, and the third goal is the most spectacular it, yeah it's from long range but again it's not really in the corner and Barthez should should do better that's not to you know undermine Ronaldo's overall career but I think the fact that he got a sand innovation <laughs> In this game, I always felt, even at the time, I remember thinking it, it felt like a very sly action by the crowd as a kind of get-out-of-jail-free card, almost like, oh, we've, we've blown the Champions League again. Hey, let's kind of clap everyone and people might forget. Do you know what I mean? It, it you just suggest felt slightly... that clapping is being used here as a vehicle <laughs> to somehow mask deficiencies in the management of some kind of major... Yeah, I think I Okay. Yeah. Well, anyway, the, the crowd at Old Trafford that day felt that it was good enough to warrant an innovation and they gave him one and what Ronaldo says is one of the best moments of his career as he left the field then David Beckham came on the scoreline at that point was 3-2 to Madrid David Beckham first unleashing a trademark free kick and then just about touching somebody else's shot in scores two goals in the space of about 20 minutes uh, for a 4-3 win on the night but of course Real Madrid going through 6-5 on aggregate a pyrrhic victory then for Man United not just because they went out of the competition but also because watching in the stands that day was a certain young Russian billionaire by the name of Roman Abramovich who decides he's going to spend his money becoming United's biggest rival from now on mm. yeah I mean, you can make an argument that this these few months in 2003 were hugely pivotal to English football for the rest of the decade, if not further, because as you just said, you know, Abramovich gets enchanted by football and decides to buy an English club. Um, it was also the period where Liverpool, according to Phil Thompson, had been offered Cristiano Ronaldo for about four million pounds and they were kind of umming and ahhing and I think eventually spent the money on Steve Finnan, um, possibly not the, 
the, the correct choice. Um, you know, United sign Ronaldo for more money, 12 million, but, you know, it takes him a few years, but he becomes, you know, the standout player, uh, or one of the two, I think it's fair to say, um, for the rest of, uh, rest of time. So, yeah, it feels like a really kind of pivotal moment in uh, English football. Having left behind a thrilled Old Trafford and a very impressed Russian billionaire, Real Madrid moved into the semi-finals, becoming the only non-Italian side there. The other semi-finalists being Milan, who'd squeaked past Ajax, Inter, who'd ended Valencia's fine run on away goals, and Juventus, who'd got the better of Barcelona with that late, late Zalajeta winner. This was the first time Juventus had won in Spain since 1970. Um, and I think you were right at the top of the show, uh, James, when we were talking about yeah, the Italians essentially coming back and laying the smack down on the, on the Spanish who had kind of taken their mantle as being the kind of preeminent league. Um, in Europe at the time, yeah. This this whole tournament really is is Italians going to Spain and showing them who's boss. We already mentioned the Roma game. This one, I think, will go down as one of the most memorable nights in in Juventus's uh, Juventus's history. Um, you know, the game going to extra time. Um, Davids was sent off, so they were down to ten men, and yet Juventus don't look to hold on. Um, they look to try and win the game, and uh, Marcelo Zalayeta scores what was uh, a famous, famous goal to send them through, where they would then face Real Madrid. So Juventus did not do it um, the easy way in in reaching the final, and I think for that reason, bar how the final ended, it was it was one of their best um, Champions League campaigns, which I think a lot of people associate. Um, with Pavel Nedved, um, Nedved, who uh, you know would become the first Czech since the the sixties to win the Ballon d'Or, um, and was very much the kind of the electric current running through this side that really kind of sparked it into life. And uh, no more did we see that than in the uh, in the semi final, particularly the second leg against those Galacticos we've just been speaking about, uh, Real Madrid, when uh, he delivers the coup de gras and again what was another um, statement performance. Uh, from the old lady. Trezeguet opened the scoring in Turin. Juve were 2-1 down from the first leg in Madrid. But after Trezeguet's goal, Del Piero then scores a particularly brilliant and a bit of a revelatory goal for anyone who, like me, felt that he was never quite the same player after 98. He looked pretty special there. Buffon then saves a Real Madrid penalty before Nedved then lashes in the third goal. I would recommend watching back the actually the first half of the first leg which Real Madrid won uh, 2-1. It was one of the most complete and most impressive performances you'll ever see by a Champions League side. The quality of uh, Real Madrid's football that night was just sublime. And the big issue with the second leg, apart from Juventus being very good, is, of course, that Makelele missed the game, injured. And with Guti as a holding midfielder, uh, Real Madrid were completely overrun. I mean, the backlash in Spain um, to the Italians basically resting back power in Italy and the manner in which they did it, which I don't think is entirely fair because they get accused of, you know, sort of being catinacciati, um, being defensive, their tactics are antiquated. And I think if you watch particularly Milan's win against Ajax in the first quarterfinal where um, they win against what Zlatan, Kivu, Schneider, Van der Vaart in the last minute... Um, in a thrilling kind of uh, 3-2 game, 
The Barcelona game at the Camp Nou, the Catalans were aggrieved. They thought they should have had a penalty for a Chiram handball, but I think watching that back, they only have themselves to blame for Luis Enrique missing a uh, golden opportunity. And then Inter edged out Valencia, I think, 1-0. And Valencia, who had been, as we mentioned, one of the... Uh, revelations of that that tournament in in how well they played in the group stages felt that they deserved to progress. Um, so you know we have three Italians in the final four, and you know as we see uh, in the reaction from Gazetta after the final, those lovable Spaniards they're often good company. They're ci stanno vomitando addosso di tutto. <laughs> they're throwing up all over us. Um, because they, 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 they find the Italian way of winning disgusting, which, as I say, I don't, I don't think is in, entirely fair, um, given the performances that particularly put out uh, Real Madrid and Barcelona. Anyone who thought that Italian sides were defensive or Catanacciari was in for a shock when Juventus took the field at Old Trafford against the Milan side who'd edged out their neighbours Inter on away goals in their semi-final. Watch out Europe indeed. A game on the 28th of May 2003, 17 years ago today actually, a game so goal-free that as I mentioned before they couldn't even score in the shootout. A lot of people writing in saying this game, which was nil-nil for 120 minutes, was it as bad as we remember? I don't think Have it you... was actually. It's not great by all means, but intriguing um, tactical I, battle. <laughs> I think the final in 2001 between Bayern and Valencia. I mean, sorry, Raf. I thought that was a worse spectacle um, than, no. than this one. You had missed penalties. You had goals. I mean, well, you had missed li- penalties in this one as well. To be yeah, fair, that's true. <laughs> Liverpool, Tottenham from a year ago as well. <laughs> yeah, true. Um, but this was 120 minutes with, as the red-haired dude points out, only eight shots on target. Was it the worst game played at Old Trafford till the David Moyes era, asked that red-haired dude? What I would say is that it, it actually looks great on TV because what they do in the centre circle is they mm. you know, they cut the grass in the way that it looks like the Champions League ball. Yeah. And that is magnificent. They should start I know, doing I was that gonna, all over again. Well, you can't. They banned it because the Leicester groundsman turned into some sort of grass art maniac and then and it's now banned so yeah but, but, I, but I, I also enjoyed that but um i i re-watched uh, the first hour of this and then i watched the penalties and it's not a bad game like shevchenko has a goal ruled out after nine minutes which is debatable i think it's where you have the the offside rule where you have two players offside who are deemed to be interfering with the goalkeeper's uh, line of sight you have Buffon, and I think Buffon is one of the stories of this tournament, as is Casillas uh, from that um, semi-final, where you have two uh, young goalkeepers, Buffon slightly more experienced than Casillas, being brilliant um, throughout throughout this competition. He makes an unbelievable save from Pippo Inzaghi, the, the definition of a bullet header from Inzaghi, which looks like it's destined to to go in the back of the net. Then Juventus finished the the, the first half quite strong. Um, Nesta, who was one of the the best players on the on the pitch that night, takes the ball off Chiro Ferrara's head after a bicycle kick from Del Piero, and then Antonio Conte, with significantly less hair than he has now, comes on in the second half and hits the bar with a diving header. So I, I admit that 
I, I can't remember what happened after the hour mark, other than the the penalties, which which themselves were were pretty dramatic in in a how bad they were, but b Buffon, who over the course of his career is is is, is told by by certain sections of the media, oh, the one flaw in your game is 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 when it comes to penalties. He'd saved that penalty we mentioned in the semi final against Figo. I think he saves two here, and uh, only Dida really outdoes him, and 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 Dida makes three saves on the basis that they are three awful penalties. Well, also, Deed is halfway to Barnard Castle for uh, Montero's <laughs> yes. penalty. And he's, he's basically almost out of the six-yard box. It's um, the most illegal penalty save I've, I've ever seen. Pablo Montero contro Dida. Va Montero. Vediamo. Parete! Ma fatene uno, Dio mio! Just on Conte, Conte had a lot of shots when he came on, and and we mentioned earlier about Abramovich having been at the uh, the Real Madrid game. This game, obviously, Conte was on the pitch, Ancelotti on the touchline. The two managers, other than Mourinho, to have won Premier League titles for Abramovich. So nice little interesting circular thing there. That Milan side, though. You had Sheva and, and Pippo up front. Pippo, of course, playing against his former team with a midfield featuring Ricosta, Sadov and Andrea Pirlo. I mean, it's quite remarkable that in 120 <laughs> minutes, even with Buffon against them, they couldn't score. Well, in, in extra time, and I'd forgotten about this, Rocky Jr., Leeds United legend, um, essentially is injured. And Carlo's used all of his substitutions. So they have to play 25 minutes at the end of a Champions League final. You know what? Italians are like, and particularly Milan, after having to come through a, 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 a Milan derby in the semi-final, the tension um, of this game was was immense. Um, so they, they they take it to penalties. But as you say, on paper, that Milan side, which would go to three Champions League finals in 03, 05 and 07, would win two of them. I think this is really important, this game, in the legacy that Carlo Ancelotti starts to build for himself. Because... You mentioned Pippo Inzaghi playing against his former club. This was Ancelotti going up against Juventus where he was considered not a failure, but certainly someone who hadn't met expectation, had lost the title on the final day in the rain in Perugia, had won the Intertoto Cup, but then had gone out of the uh, UEFA Cup, losing 4-0 to a Celta Vigo side that I must admit I forgot had Claude Makélélé and Benny McCarthy in it. And... He wins this uh, the, the trophy, which you know essentially has defined his career as a player and a coach. And Galliani, after the game, gets furious with like the, um, some of the local reporters who are saying, "Well, if you lose this game, your season is a failure because you finished, I think, third in the league. You've done nothing. Um, you're in a cup final, but that was still to be played." This was a key moment in Milan's history in the sense that they'd had a lot of instability over the last three years. You know, they'd they'd sacked Zaccaroni. Um, they'd had Maldini and Tassotti, Cesare Maldini and Tassotti, do like a little uh, double act for a while, Gerard Houllier, Roy Evans style, and then Fatih Tarim, which didn't work out. And it looked like that great era that we saw from Milan through the late 80s, through the 90s, was, was over. And in actual fact, it's only just beginning again. Only just beginning with Angelotti, the man who, as you say, had been regarded almost as a... Italian Hector Cupero. Un maiale non può allenare. Yeah, pig can't yeah. be a manager, which is the banner that the Juve fans welcomed him to Turin with when he joined up with uh, Juve as their uh, allenatore. Uh, he was sacked by Juve in 2001 after twice finishing runners-up. Second place he managed with Parma. He was Arrigo Sacchi's assistant when Italy lost the 94 World Cup final to Brazil on penalties. 
effectively he was seen as the nearly man, but he would go on to take Milan to three finals in five years and win two of them. Also, a significant day at Old Trafford back in 2003 for Clarence Seedorf. Ah, yes, Clarence, who what becomes still the only player um, to win the Champions League with uh, three different clubs, Ajax, Real Madrid and Milan. Indeed. Alrighty, so Milan were champions. It did feel, for all the intrigue of those 120 long minutes, a bit of a missed opportunity. The first time Italy had got two sides through to the final, and I think for most neutrals watching it, it failed to really catch fire. But then that's quite often the case when you get two teams from the same country, no, Duncan? Yeah, I think if you go through, there's been six uh, Champions League finals between teams from the same country, and I don't think any of them have been brilliant. Um, they've often ended in draws or and gone to penalties, so probably because the teams know each other so well. Um, but I think there was still stuff to take from the game. One thing that I noticed, actually, we talked about the aesthetics of the centre circle. I noticed as the penalties were being taken, the incredible number of camera flashes that were going around the ground, which you don't get anymore because people obviously take photos with their phones. Um, but it does disprove that thing. You know, there's that kind of meme that, you know, People in the olden days lived in the moment and now no one does. But people were just using lower quality uh, devices, that's all. Well, let's finish off then with the other European final of that season, which also went to extra time but was a little bit more eventful. I'd mentioned Celtic being knocked into the UEFA Cup by Basel earlier on. They made it under the stewardship of Martin O'Neill all the way to the final of the UEFA Cup in Seville where they came up against a Porto team managed by a young Portuguese fellow named Jose Mourinho. Yeah, I mean, as we mentioned last week, um, last catch-up with the uh, performing before kick-off, which, you know, echoes uh, through the ages. But, um, yeah, it was a really good match. Um, Marte O'Neill was incensed by Porto's uh, gamesmanship. I think that was the kind of, uh, the angle that was taken, you know, sort of um, honest British pros against, uh, you know, sneaky to be fair, he hasn't finished going on about it. He still brings it up at almost every opportunity whenever Mourinho comes up. It is quite weird, actually, think about that both Celtic and Rangers got to the UEFA Cup slash Europa League final in the 2000s. It's kind of easily forgotten. Well, but, but yeah, it obviously started... Mourinho's continental adventure with uh, mm. with Porto going on in the Champions League the following season. Two goals from Delay, two goals from Enric Larsson as well, but a 3-2 win for Porto. Apparently it was a scrap at half-time as well, in which Alan Thompson sprayed Mourinho with Lucasaid. Any details on that? Well, you'd have hoped it would be Iron Brew, but, you know, I guess you grab what you what's nearby. Um, obviously, there are two red cards as well. Bobo Balde got sent off um, in extra time, and then right at the end, Nuno Valente for, for Porto. So, a, a memorable, feisty cup final. Possibly everything the Champions League final wasn't. And also, uh, Roma legend uh, and uh, Russian hero, Dmitry Alenichev, um, who uh, I believe is, with Steven Gerrard, the only player to have scored in victories in the UEFA Cup and, uh, and Champions League finals. So, um, Alenichev, uh, if he hasn't been given a, um, I don't know, uh, Medal of Honor of the Fatherland in, in Russia, he certainly is due one. Um, the other thing I would mention about that Porto side is, which really leaps out, um, particularly maybe uh, in the modern era, but also against Celtic, who you know so much of their legend is 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 built on 
you know, sort of their Lisbon lions all being Scottish and growing up within a, a stone's throw of, of paradise. This Porto side, there are only two foreign players in the uh, in the starting eleven. I think 12 of the 14 that were used were all Portuguese and, uh, well, Deco naturalised Brazilian who uh, was, was excellent in this game as well. Also really digged, uh, really dug into the Nuno Capucho vibe. Um, Nuno Capucho, who I, I, I'd forgotten about, don't know what's happened to him, wasn't a particularly, doesn't seem to be quite a famous player. Just absolutely nailing the shirt out, socks down, long hair vibe that I just um, really sort of enjoyed from um, from from Porto that season. Some people think that is still fashionable in 2020. <laughs> Just to rub it in to Celtic that summer, he then went on to join Rangers. So, um, you know, the wow. ultimate villain. And there you have it. That was Europe 2002-2003. More of that kind of thing in a week's time. And we'll be looking at 2003-4. But we move next on today's show to what awaits this weekend in the Bundesliga. You're listening to The Totally Football Show with James Richardson. Bundesliga. Didn't get much of a chance to talk about German clubs in that Champions League conversation, Rafa. But let's round up one or two of the other key results from midweek. How about Hertha Berlin continuing their excellent start under Bruno Labbadia, holding Leipzig 2-2. Yeah, a huge result for them. They were already the best team of the restart um, with six points and seven goals, none conceded after two games. And going to Leipzig, you're thinking, you know, how, how good is this Hertha team really under Bruno Labbadia? And the answer is very good, although Julian Nagelsmann said, well, um, the opposition weren't even playing well and we still didn't find a way to win. He was very, very annoyed and didn't give them much credit. He's not wrong when it comes to the Hertha keeper, Runa Jarstein. <laughs> yeah. Just when you think that Hertha are suddenly all competent and organised and, uh, you know, a completely different experience to the Hertha team that we used to enjoy, uh, only in the sense that you can laugh about their ineptitude, they turn up and play really well, but still manage to be a little bit Hertha-ish, if you will, with uh, Jarstein uh, throwing that shot into his own goal in quite a comical fashion. But still, you know, a 2-2 draw, a Piontek came on, scored a penalty. Hertha, I'm afraid, will have to be taken seriously. Maybe they even, they'll even make it into the Europa League. I mean, for a team that we, that you know, had delusions of grandeur when they were talked about as a big city club by their new investor, Lars Windhorst, maybe they will be a big city club. Leipzig missing out on the chance there to move into second place in the league. Meantime, huge win on Wednesday for Fortuna Dusseldorf down in the relegation struggle against Schalke, where David Wagner is under real pressure now, Rafa. Ten games without a win, the worst team in the second half of the Bundesliga is is not good. Um, in fact, it's pretty bad. And, you know, while I think they would be quite happy with being mid-table close to the Europa League before the start of the season when they, I think, realised it was going to be a bit of a transition season, having only just fought off relegation the season before. Because they had a good start and they were in the running for the Europa League and Champions League places for, for quite a while, this now feels like a collapse. And the fact that Schalke are playing just horrific, bad football, which is just horrible to watch, I think makes people question whether he will be the manager to take this team forward. They've been crying out for somebody who transforms this club with all the the fan base and the history and the potential you know, power that they have. And whoever they get in, 
doesn't seem to be able to do it, at least not on a sustained basis. I hope they'll give him more time, but mm. it's getting to the point where people are thinking, okay, who's next? People like Alex Cooney who writes, is David Wagner actually any good? His miracle brackets fluke question mark close brackets season with Huddersfield to get promoted looks out of place with his terrible management in the top divisions. His Schalke team look the most unfit and clueless in the returning Bundesliga. Wow. They're going to be up against Bremen at the weekend. Bremen who are busy trying to fight the drop. Dusseldorf, meanwhile, will be travelling to Munich uh, this weekend uh, having drawn 3-3 with them earlier this season. That being in Munich is actually an advantage for Dusseldorf, isn't it, Rafa? <laughs> well, um, so far, home advantage has kind of gone out the window. But then, as our good friend Archie Rittut uh, remarked, that home advantage hasn't been much of a thing even before the lockdown. So maybe a little bit, still a bit too early to read too much into it. Um, I'm sure they, they'd rather play Bayern in an empty stadium than in a full one. But I don't think it's going to change the basic equation, which means that if they get anything from this game, it will be a huge surprise, uh, if not upset. Um, but they played really well against Schalke. They were the better side. They had more possession, which shows you just how poor Schalke are. And for once, they got the just reward because they had been playing pretty well without getting those wins. And that win was absolutely necessary, especially if you consider the, the improved form of Werder Bremen just, uh, just behind them. So they'll also have to play Dortmund, Leipzig. Uh, Hoffenheim as well, so very difficult fixture list for Uwe Rösler, but he's given himself a chance to to stay up. This business of the home wins, though, I, I know the sample size is still small, but what is it, 27 games since the restart and only five victories for home teams. That is unusual, Duncan, I'm thinking. Yeah, I had a look at the at the XG, and the X, it's basically identical. So the home teams have created the same XG so far since the restart as the away teams, which obviously isn't normal there is normally a gap and there was in the Bundesliga before the lockdown um, but it's still too small a sample size I think I mean a quick mention for the Frankfurt Freiburg game midweek um, where the gap between XG was almost four goals uh, which is the biggest gap by a team who haven't won the match in Europe this season other than the Juventus Sassoulu game so can you explain that so basically Frankfurt had 34 shots, 16 on target, with an XG of about 4.7. Uh, Freiburg had five shots on target, scored with three of those, um, and had an XG of under under one. So basically, Frankfurt battered Freiburg and didn't win. So, Okay, got it. Uh, Rafa, in the meantime, still no positive uh, tests back, which is great news. No? They've had three rounds of action and people aren't turning up positive. It's not... The, the feared kind of re-explosion of, of, of coronavirus through contact football hasn't happened. No, so far so good. I mean, there'll be another round uh, of tests, of course, ahead of this uh, weekend's fixtures. Uh, we can only um, hope they'll continue that way. I think the biggest weakness is perhaps not so much what happens on the pitch, but in the rest of uh, German society, because it is opening up at an incredibly rapid pace where the different federal states are almost sort of in competition of who can open more more quickly. Um, and, you know, with beer gardens being open and restaurants and even swimming pools, uh, there is a worry that uh, through somebody's family's member, um, etc., you might get uh, get infected. But so far on the pitch, it looks good. And as Christoph Biermann um, told us, German-based uh, journalist, that because of Germany having opened up and having normalized to, to quite large extent football with his mask and his strict protocol almost looks a little bit quaint now 
Uh, whereas perhaps when it initially came back, people thought, oh, no, my God, what are they doing? How can they even think about playing? It seems as if they're now stricter and sort of more controlled than the rest of society is. Already? Well, another round of action starting on Friday night with Freiburg up against Bayer Leverkusen. Uh, both teams in uh, involved in Goldfests on Tuesday. Then on Saturday evening, again, we'll be covering live Bayern against Fortuna Dusseldorf. And Sunday afternoon, Paderborn up against Dortmund. Could be an interesting one. Paderborn, bottom of the table. Dortmund, of course, fresh from that defeat at home to Bayern Munich. Loads of other games, and we'll be on there, Rafa, from 2 o'clock. Well, we'll have a bit more chat in a second or two, but first let's get some odds on some of those fixtures with Lee Price talking to Ben Green. Thank you, Shane Jimbo and Gooden Targ listeners. I'm on the line with Lee Price from Paddy Power. Lee, Bundesliga preview time again, and let's kick off with top of the table, Bayern Munich. Can they get four goals or more against Dusseldorf? <laughs> yeah, ever so slightly favourites in this one, Bayern. Just the 1-20 to 20 to see off Dusseldorf. Uh, it's the same price Bavarian score at least twice, and still odds on at 5-6, to six, they score four or more times. Conversely, our trades make it a long shot that Fortuna score more than once. A long afternoon, we think, for the visitors. Dortmund, of course, lost the Classica, so what chance of them bouncing back against Paderborn? And also, is Lucien Favre still going to be their manager next season? Hmm, well, Dortmund are 1-4 to four to beat Paderborn, so no immediate hangover from that damaging defeat in the Classica. But there could be ramifications longer term. You mentioned Favre. It's odds on now that he leaves his position before the start of next season. Jaden Sancho is also odds on to depart. And it's now just 11-10 to 10 that Dortmund finish outside the top two. Surely not. Erling Haaland, of course, the start at Borussia Dortmund. Uh, but his former club, Salzburg, um, are in action in the Austrian Cup final this weekend. They're up against second division Austria Lustenau, of course. Um, is the form book going to go out the window here? <laughs> Glad you asked about this one. Certainly after my notes down to stop me waffling. Ah. Based almost exclusively on the odds, it looks like a one-sided final. Red Bull 1-12 to to win. Austria lost to now 16-1. And the only other thing I've got written down here is that lost to now have a striker called Ronivaldo. Like a mix of Ronaldo and Rivaldo. I'll bet he's good. You can find out these odds and more at paddypower.com or the Paddypower app. Prices are accurate at the time of recording is over 18s only. Terms and conditions apply and when the fun stops, stop. Let's have some tweets, eh? Eamon McHale says, uh, good question. Uh, how much of an advantage do you think getting the Bundesliga season back up and running early will be for Bayern over their Champions League rivals? Of course, Bayern currently midway through their tie with Chelsea, but 3-0 up from the first leg at Stamford Bridge and likely thus to make it through to the next round. Rafa, it's a, it's a fine point, this. The question is when a Champions League will come back. If it only comes back in August, then it might be a disadvantage. Finishing your uh. season in early July, if they make it to the cup final, or even uh, late June if they don't, and then having to wait around for a month before the Champions League starts again. So it's it could go either way, I think. Um, I guess UEFA will only take a position once all the big leagues are up and running again, and then they'll have to see when the earliest time and, and place is that they can find with travel restrictions, etc., um, to restart. But I think we'll probably see some movement on that in the next next week or so, I should think. Okay. Box Armour says, fifth time tweeting this one for Horny. Why on earth are Juventus going to sell Pjanic to Barcelona? Has their policy of signing free transfers or massive wages caught up with them now having to pay average players like Ramsey and Rabiot huge figures? Surely craziness wow. thinking of selling. Bet Rafa's got a view on this. 
Well, I mean, <laughs> Rafa, Rafa must be aghast at the idea of Pjanic going to going to Barcelona and to kind of collect the inheritance of uh, of, of of Xavi and Iniesta. Um, but look, it, it wouldn't be a, a sale; it would be a swap. You know, I think uh, this goes to the heart of uh, Plus Valencia, if you want to put it like that, is uh, making a swap to make your balance sheet, uh, record the capital gain on your balance sheet. So there's, uh, I think, as we've heard from Juventus' kind of chief football officer, Fabio Paratici, in anticipating what the market's going to look like over the summer, liquidity is obviously going to be a problem, not just for clubs like Juventus, but for clubs all around Europe. So, um, you know, what we might see is is more... NBA style trades. Um, Juventus is very interested in 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 Arthur, the Barcelona Brazilian midfield player who would kind of has the similar profile to Pjanic, a profile that corresponds with uh, Maurizio Sarri's style of football. Um, you look at Pjanic and you think uh, 29, nearly 30, earns a lot of money. Is this the last opportunity for them to get uh, good money, either through a sale, or, as I said, from looking at the value he has on the the balance sheet at the moment. Um, People have got to remember also with Juventus that um, yeah, they have to innovate all the time in order to keep up with um, the best clubs in Europe because by, by dint of geography, you know, they, uh, they don't make the same money from TV that Premier League clubs do um, or even Spanish clubs do um, at the top of the Spanish table. Um, yeah, they're very dependent on on Champions League revenue and, uh, and and player trading revenue, even though they've been able to boost the kind of cash that they bring in from commercial deals because of signing Cristiano Ronaldo. So, I don't think this is a sign of them having, uh, holding a fire sale. I think it's just it's pretty typical of what they do every year, um, really. Which um, you know, as we saw last summer, for example, you know they were they were willing to do a deal for Paolo Dybala if the price was right and the the player that they got in return or, or money they got in return suited the kind of economic objectives as well. I think the one final point is that every sporting director these days has to get the balance right between equipping the team to be competitive and, 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 and balancing the books financially as well. And I don't think this is any different. There you go, Boxama. Michael McIntyre has an interesting one. He says, I like to daydream about an alternate reality, don't we all? Uh, his one has world leaders moving between top jobs like football managers. Personally, says Malcolm, I'd love to see Jacinda Ardern get one of the top jobs like US or China. Which leader could save UK from sliding down the economic tables? Well, that's a question. We also had a tweet, Duncan, uh, asking about Kakakaladze, who uh, has gone on to enter politics himself. He's currently... Uh, the mayor of Tbilisi, I believe. Yeah, it made me think that Milan must be one of the... It's a hotbed for trainee politicians, because obviously George Weyer, president of Liberia, Shevchenko mm-hmm. is, is moving into politics. I mean, I'm not sure where they got the inspiration from, stood on the touchline observing training, but, uh, yeah, you know, if you want to be I'm a politician... I'm sure Silvio Berlusconi gave those players a very sound political grounding. Um, yeah. yeah. I don't think there's anyone better to learn from in terms of... Uh, being ethical and uh, and practicing what you preach. Um, Not sure what Ukrainian for bunga bunga is, but yeah, absolutely. Well, fascinating though all that is. That's where we come to the end of today's totally football show. Many thanks, listener, for being with us. We'll be back on Sunday with all the latest news, bit of a roundup on the Bundesliga, 
and of course a retro special as we continue to chart the progress of the Premier League into the incredible competition it is now. We've reached the 99-2000 season, so uh, that'll make for some interesting listening. We'll have Matt Davis-Adams and Daniel Storey and Michael Cox, those two on the show for the last time before they face each other in the intertotally final. Is that like uh, a weigh-in then, like a heavyweight weigh-in? Where yeah, I expect sparks off. to fly. Yeah, yeah, very much so. You want a piece of me? <laughs> Up in each other's grills. Yes. Many thanks to James Horncastle, Duncan Alexander and Raphael Honigstein. And we'll catch up with you soon. From all of us here, it's goodbye. You've been listening to The Totally Football Show, a Muddy Knees Media production. For sales and advertising, please email sales at muddykneesmedia.com. Keep up to date with everything across our Totally Football network at The Totally Show on Twitter. And make sure you check out our brand new website too, thetotallyfootballshow.com. Muddy Knees Media.